Well, today we're wrapping up our series from Titus, Leading While Stuck in the Home. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And today we're closing out the letter that Paul wrote to Titus, talking about how he closes it out. Ian has read our text, thank you, Ian, which is Titus chapter 3, verses 9 through 15, the very end. We're going to look at this in three sets of verses. 9 through 11 talks about affirming the gospel by rejecting speculation and division. The second set of verses is 12 through 14, and that talks about applying the gospel by living productively. And the third is just one verse long, verse 15, and it's about appreciating the gospel by connecting with other believers. Shall we take a look together? Let's do that. Titus chapter 3, verse 9, but avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Immediately when I look at this verse, I have to stop and back up because but is a word that is contrasting what's in our verse with what came before. So I've got to go back and check what came before, read the prior verse, which Pastor Tim covered in last week's sermon. Verse 8 says this, this is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. And all of a sudden, I'm in inception or something because I look at the word this that starts verse 8, and I go, well, that's looking backwards too. What is this referring to? And since I don't want to preach a sermon in the style of the movie Memento, instead, I'm just going to sum up what came before. We were selfish and we were divided until God kindly treated us in a way we would never have deserved. And we are now God's washed, included, and valued children. Then verse 8 says, we are therefore ones who serve him by doing his good work. Pastor Tim's sermon last week is helpful. It's pretty engaging. So I encourage you, if you haven't seen it, to take a look again on YouTube. So back to verse 9, which is where I'm supposed to be preaching. Your people, Paul says, have been rewired in Christ according to God's grace by the Holy Spirit through their king, Jesus, and can now do God's good works. But there are going to be some on the island of Crete who are going to be a distraction for you and for your people. Let's drill in a little bit on this word avoid. It's, it's an imperative. It's a command. Paul is saying avoid. The word actually has a, a slightly more nuanced meaning than that, to step around, to stand aside. You're, you're dodging, you're getting around somebody. And so I think it would be a good opportune time to take a look at some examples of how that might be done. So Paul is saying, Eurostep, foolish controversies and the like. Paul is saying, spin move around genealogies. Paul is saying, fancy dribble around arguments and quarrels about the law. Avoid them, step around them, step aside from them. Get to the rim, which is being about the gospel and living it out. Get to the rim, people. Now, 
These four things have some meanings that we can dig into a little bit. Foolish controversies is the first one. Perhaps the word might be better understood as speculations. These are the first thing that Paul avoids, or wants Titus to avoid. And look, most of us have some pet theories that are not substantiated by much. And in this case, I'm not going to share any of mine with you. You're going to have to think about your own. But there are some people who are just more interested in controversy and speculation than they are in God's revealed truth. I had a friend who was afraid, literally told me she was afraid to read the book of John, the Gospel of John, but she wanted to talk to no end about what she'd read about the Gospel of Thomas, a second century faux gospel, Gnostic influenced, not helpful, not the word of God. She had plenty of time for that. Something in her didn't want to engage, at least at that time, with what God had actually said. For her, the idea was that hidden knowledge was more tantalizing than what God had clearly said. Okay, there are other places that we see this. The Mishnah is a collection of rabbinical teachings that were made in the second century, and they have lists of rules that embellish the law and flesh out how to follow the law. And the interesting thing about it is there are rules from different rabbis and they conflict with each other. So how do you fulfill the law? Sometimes they agree and sometimes they're no help at all. So why not just look at the law and the intent of it? Why not just look at what Jesus said about how to interpret it? There are more uh, examples that are more contemporary about speculations. A guy named Harold Camping, who had many radio stations, was certain that he had calculated the date of the end of the world. He Does the Bible teach this? No. He made some assumptions, he made some logical leaps, he made a simplistic mathematical equation, and he came up with a, a day, and there were signs like the one shown on the screen. So back in 2011, you could see billboards like this. There were RVs wrapped in signs like this, claiming that the world was going to come to an end on May 21st, 2011. As you can see, that didn't happen. Now, the same man had made claims about an end of the world in 1994, well before that. And he'd apologized. He said he'd gotten a verse wrong. And the thing was, he, he couldn't stop speculating. And this was a guy who taught that Pretty much all churches were either badly in error or actually in league with Satan. So you talk about a person who isn't interested in what the Bible actually says, is interested in speculating about it, and is interested in disassociating people with their local churches where there'd hopefully be accountability for egregious errors like this one. Okay, so the tendency isn't unusual, and perhaps that's a reason that Paul is telling Titus don't engage with such people. Now, the next word is genealogies. Tracking a genealogy, that can be a harmless pastime. It can be interesting to know where you came from. That's not really what Paul's referring to. What he's talking about is people who are trying to change the focus from what God has done in the lives, is doing in the lives of people today, and instead have them focus on family in the past. It's less about what God can do now, and it's more about how privileged you should be because of who you're related to. Well, according to Matthew and Luke, there are reasons 
to share somebody's genealogy. They both list genealogies for Jesus. And you can see that there are different ways to work your way through a genealogy depending on what you want to highlight. That's not what these people were about, though. What they were about was essentially saying, we're purebloods, we're not those mudbloods or those muggles, as though their heritage was going to get them into God's good graces. And it doesn't help you in Christ's kingdom where you came from. I'm so grateful that it, it can be an asset, it can be a liability who you're related to, but God deals with you on an individual basis. And in Christ, all of us are on equal footing as heirs with him of all that God has. So it doesn't matter who your mom was in the kingdom of Christ. We see the same problem existing in Ephesus where Paul instructed Timothy to keep the people on target by avoiding these myths and endless genealogies. So in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7, as I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you can command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. So Paul's big point to Timothy is, we want believers to be putting their energy into cooperating with God's work and cooperating with God's agenda, not wasting their energy on these fruitless topics. All right, the next item in Paul's list is escalating things a little bit. Arguments, which has the sense of being points in strife and rivalry. Disagreements that divide. Do you know anybody who loves argument for argument's sake? I mean, back when I was a high schooler doing debates, you definitely had to argue on either side of an issue. That was part of what you were required to do. Unfortunately, I didn't leave that behind when I left high school and when I left formal debate. I continued to be a person who was argumentative, and I would pick whatever was the opposite side that you were on because it was fun and entertaining to engage in that kind of argument. Fortunately, things have changed a bit. And you might say, Mike, I know you a little bit. I kind of still see that in you. And all I can say is you're looking at a person who has been sanctified over time, believe it or not, and Jesus has done on this point a lot of direct work in taking my joy out of fruitless argumentation and putting it into other places. So you should have seen me before Jesus started dealing with this. Or Maybe you should be grateful you didn't. Can you see how an argumentative congregation could be a problem? How could it be, oh, I don't know, distracting, confusing, discouraging? Feeding that strife is something we have to step around. Enjoying that strife is even worse. When these kinds of arguments find a, a real disagreement to settle on, they turn into quarrels about the law or what might be interpreted as legal battles. People, even some lawyers, say nobody wins in a legal battle. That's all the more so true in a church. When arguments find some rule to attach to or some decision to have controversy over, they can turn into bloody, full-fledged fights. 
at a church I attended in my youth, there was a man who had to be forcibly removed from an adult Sunday school class because he would not stop yelling at the teacher. Uh, that person teaching the class uh, was out of line as far as this guy was concerned, and so other people had to intervene and take him out because he was so persuaded he was right, and being right was what was most important to him. We can't have a body of, the body of Christ in legal battles with itself. Here's what Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 says is the target that Paul is shooting for. Verse 11, so Christ gave, uh, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the, the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work, love and work together. Now, Ephesians 4.15 says we are to grow into maturity, speaking the truth in love. So I want you to look at this slide. Do you see a W on this slide? There's not a W there, is there? So stop looking for a W in your interactions with Christ's other sheep. We're not after the win. We're not after the W. The point isn't to win, it's to grow and to help others grow. Now, 1 Timothy 6, 3-7 is echoing some of these. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, they're conceited and understand nothing. They have an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between people of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. And that contentment in Christ is not only what Timothy and Titus's churches needed, but what Church of the Valley and its people ought to be seeking not to get the win, not to get ahead, not to be comfortable, not to do only what we want to do for ourselves. Now, in verse 10, we can see the appropriate response to such distractions and division. So verse 10, warn a divisive person once, then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. In his second letter to the church at Thessalonica, Paul says something similar about disruptive people, speaking particularly about ones who aren't working. So 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, I'm going to read verses 6 and 11. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, King Jesus King, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you received from us. We hear that some among you are idle and disruptive, they are not busy, 
They are busybodies. Look, keep away from other believers sounds harsh, but Paul seeks the good of the whole church, not the disruptive people. But notice also he's instructing an active kind of confrontation when these issues come up. Do it once, then do it twice before you go down the route of shunning. Oftentimes, what we find in our culture is that people are free to share their complaint about somebody with everybody else except the person who's apparently the problem. Paul is not down with that at all. And in verse 11, Paul tells Titus why this exclusion is necessary. Titus chapter 3, verse 11, you may be sure that such people are warped and sinful. They are self-condemned. There's no hope for somebody while they're stuck insisting on missing the point, which is the grace of Jesus Christ. Note here that self-condemned, it doesn't mean that, that they're raising their hand and saying, I disregard the gospel in favor of all the insignificant and speculative things that I want to believe, and I acknowledge that by doing so, I will miss out in, from God's presence. That's not what he's talking about at all. Here, self-condemned means more like what they say and what they do demonstrates that they don't care about God's grace, that that's not what's motivating what they're about. They're interested in speculations and self-justifying family backgrounds and argument for the sake of argument, especially if that turns into conflicts and full-fledged fights. I can say it, fights. Our lives should be affirming the gospel by our behavior. You and I should not allow ourselves to indulge in spiritual speculations not rooted in the truth of Scripture. You and I should not be dividers of the church and its people. We affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ by stepping around speculation and division, and therefore we should address these directly when they arrive here at Church of the Valley. Most of all, we should recognize our own tendencies in these areas and try to notice them ourselves, but also to allow somebody to have a voice in our lives so that when they see evidence of it, that they can say something to us. Now, Paul's next going to turn to some ministry teams that he's directing. And normally, my, my thing is I, I tend to blow past names of people and places because I can tell when we're in the same building by the glazing of your eyes that just hearing a non-modern name is more than you're ready to take. But in this case, we're not in the same room, so I want you to notice the place and the people especially. So in Titus chapter 3, verse 12, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I've decided to winter there. Now, I don't know anybody named Artemis. I, I thought that I did because I thought the drummer for Leonard Skinner was named Artemis, but it turns out he spells it differently. So I don't know anybody named Artemis. And you're not going to find this Artemis anywhere else in Scripture. He's basically a one-hit wonder, scripturally speaking. But Tychicus his fellow worker, is a different story. We hear about him in Acts 20, verse 4, where we learn that he comes from the province of Asia and that he's a person who travels with Paul. And then in Ephesians 6, 21 and 2 Timothy 4, 12, we find that Paul went, uh, Tychicus went at Paul's bidding to visit the church at Ephesus. And then from Colossians chapter 4, verse 7, we see Tychicus was sent to Colossae as well 
So he may have been the one who delivered those letters, the letter to the Ephesians and the letter to the Colossians. We don't know, and I don't want to speculate, right? What's interesting is that Paul describes Tychicus in those letters as the dear brother. He uses an expression that he uses only for Tychicus and one other person, Onesimus, the slave that he writes to Philemon about in his letter to Philemon. Tychicus is, has this interesting responsibility. He's entrusted to tell you everything and to tell you all the news about me to those two churches. In a sense, he's an emissary from Paul, but he's also an emissary for Paul. He's able to represent Paul and his concerns wherever he's sent. What a blessing that had to have been to Paul to have somebody who could stand in for him and really understand what was going on with Paul and be able to present it well. Now, consensus says that Artemis was the one who went to Crete and Tychicus went instead to Ephesus. But isn't it interesting to see how Paul is doing ministry? He has a couple of choices for ministers of the gospel to come to relieve Titus and bring their own gifts for ministry to Crete. We're going to turn now uh, to a place that Paul mentions, Nicopolis, and I want to give you this trigger warning. I'm going to show you a map, so gird yourself for that. On this map, you can see Italy on the left. Rome is uh, located up near the top with a red dot. There's another red dot down near the right corner labeled Jerusalem. Near the middle, under the label for Macedonia, you can see Nicopolis. It's on the west coast. Now, this is one of a number of cities called Nicopolis. We're almost certain that this is the one where Paul would have been staying. It's uh, a place that was created by a guy named Octavian, who you might know as Caesar Augustus. He was celebrating his victory over Mark Antony at the Battle of Actium. So now you know all about Nicopolis. And then Crete is the, the short, broad island right below Greece. And Paul is instructing Titus, hey, come from Crete, meet me in Nicopolis. Now the Mediterranean Sea is said to have been so dangerous from November to March that it was unsafe to sail on the open sea then. But Paul would be near churches in Greece while he was waiting over that winter period that he could visit them. And so Paul is always, always thinking about ministry. Are you? Am I? Are we? And that makes me just want to interject something here. There's nothing better in ministry than people who are like-minded enough and known enough that they can represent each other, help each other, listen to each other, encourage one another in a way that goes beyond the surface. And as a lot of you know, Pastor Tim and I are friends. One of the interesting things is that we're primarily ministry friends. We have some shared experience. We have some shared culture. We have some shared interests. But what we have most is a love for Jesus and his gospel, and therefore a love for one another. And I'm really grateful for that. I have another ministry friend that I want to honor today, my bride, Karen. We have a ton of shared experiences and culture and interests, but what we have most is a love for Jesus and his gospel, and therefore a love for each other that goes a lot deeper than it would otherwise, and I am so grateful for that. So on this Mother's Day, I just want to say I miss my own mother who died five years ago yesterday, 
but I so esteem and value and appreciate and love my children's mother. And now that I've been sincere for a bit, I need a moment to compose myself. So kids, could you please weigh in? Hello, Karen. Welcome to your performance review. Just a couple of strengths we'd like to commend. First, your depiction of Mary Carrot in the game Dungeons and Dragons was really inspiring. Really deserves an Oscar. And your trampoline abilities, including your unparalleled vertical leap, is the stuff of legend. And uh, one weakness, you don't give your children enough dessert. But overall, a 10 out of 10. It's been a pleasure working with you. Okay, seriously, Karen is the most diligent person that I know. And I learn every day from her what it means to put others first before her own needs. Now in verse 13, Paul is asking Titus, I've instructed you to do all these things, but here's another way in which I want you to put others ahead of yourself. He says, do everything you can to help Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. So this is the second ministry team that Paul talks about in this letter. Zenos and Apollos are apparently going to already be in Crete uh, and are going to be heading somewhere else. Could they be the people who brought the letter to Titus? We don't know. And again, we don't want to speculate. It's a possibility. Well, who are these guys? Zenos is another person not mentioned elsewhere in scripture. So all we know is that he's a lawyer, someone learned in the law. Now that could mean the law of Moses. In this case, it's probably more likely that it's the law of Rome. In any event, he's a guy who's great with details and uh, understanding fine degrees of meaning. Apollos, on the other hand, is a name he doesn't need to explain. He's mentioned by name 11 times in uh, 11 New Testament verses. He's a Jew from Alexandria, the one in Egypt, not the one in Virginia. He was very familiar with the Hebrew scriptures, but all he'd known about was the baptism of John the Baptist, a baptism of repentance from sin, but not into anything. And nonetheless, he was preaching that Jesus was the Christ. And way back in Acts chapter 18, he encountered another one of Paul's ministry teams in Ephesus, Priscilla and Aquila. They broadened his understanding of the truth, helped him to move on to minister elsewhere, and so he went off and encouraged believers by his fervent speaking that he was known for and his ability to take the Hebrew scriptures and prove that Jesus was the Messiah. So these guys are probably a really amazing pair. Now we know from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians that Apollos was a really influential guy, so much so that one of the things Paul had to address was the fact that people were holding Apollos up as an idol. They were saying, oh, I'm in the Paul faction. Oh, I'm in the Peter faction. Oh, I'm in the Apollos faction. What does that sound like? It sounds like something that would divide. So Paul points all of those camps back, not to any of those three, but to Jesus. Paul isn't bothered by Apollos being popular. He's only bothered that someone would idolize one of these men instead of the king of kings. So let's remember that no other human being deserves adoration and worship, only Jesus. Don't follow someone who's going to die.
Don't idolize someone who's going to die. The only man who deserves our worship is the one who died and who rose again. Our hero is Jesus, our King. Now, what's Titus supposed to do for this high brain power ministry team? He's supposed to organize support. He and his churches can help everything from prayer to logistics and hospitality in between. Titus had been left on Crete, as Paul explained back in chapter 1, to do the unfinished task of appointing and training elders for all the churches on the island of Crete. So he's apparently the kind of guy who gets things done, who makes things happen, and Paul wants him to turn his attention in part to the next travels of Zenos and Apollos. Now, speaking of people who can get things done, I wanted just to say I really appreciate how Samuel Haas is doing ministry wherever he finds himself. And so we've got a little clip from Sam explaining what he's doing currently. Hello, CUV. My name is Samuel, and I'm a missionary working with Agape International Missions to combat sex trafficking in Cambodia. I'm currently stuck here in the United States, as shortly after I arrived here in the United States, the Cambodian government imposed a ban on U.S. citizens from entering the country due to COVID-19. My wife has since been able to return about a month and a half ago because she's a Cambodian citizen, but unfortunately my attempt to return was unsuccessful, as I tried to leave right after the ban was initially set to expire, but as I was flying over there, the regulations were changed again, the ban was extended, and so I was denied entry in Cambodia and had to fly right back. Uh, so all of our plans have been thrown a bit for a loop here, but God knows best, and his timing is better than ours. And I'm grateful that I'm now able to use my time here in the United States to use the skills God has given me to work for a tax firm I used to work at, to serve COV wherever I can, to help others, and thankfully due to technology, I'm still able to get a lot of work done remotely for our work in Cambodia. He knows best, and in his perfect timing, I will one day be able to return to Cambodia. So Sam is living out what Paul next tells Titus the people have to learn to do, devote themselves to doing what is good. All kinds of things can be good things to do. What things are we gonna do now is more the question. Verse 14 in Titus 3, our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order to provide for urgent needs and not live unproductive lives. Paul says, our people. I love that. He doesn't say your people as though they're Titus's problem now. He doesn't say my people as though he deserves the credit for having started these churches. Paul is exemplifying team ministry here. It's not just about directing teams to one place or another. It's about having care for the other shepherds and for sheep you're not currently tending. It's about valuing all the community group leaders, not just yours. And it's about valuing all the community group attenders, not just the ones in your group. Serving Christ involves doing what you tell others to do and being what you tell others to be. Serving Christ is about doing what you tell others to do and being what you tell others to be. Of course, you and I won't do that perfectly, but if we aren't shooting for behavior that's consistent with what our message is, we've missed a huge message of this letter to Titus. What is it Paul wants from his people? Paul, the guy who's ready to preach or train anywhere, who works at his trade whenever it's necessary, 
He wants them to do what's good. Why? <laughs> to provide for urgent needs, to not live unproductive lives, not to live unproductive lives. So he wants them to be able to meet needs where they are. And he also wants their lives to have value and not be frittered away on stuff that doesn't matter. And I love how I've seen people following Jesus by looking out for one another here at Church of the Valley, within the community, with people pitching in where somebody needs a hand. I love seeing that. But also, following Jesus means not wasting what he's given us. And I got to tell you, for the first few weeks of Shelter in a Place, I spent way too much time listening to old dragnet radio episodes. I kid you not, this weird anachronistic time sink that I was engaged in, it's probably okay if I'm working in the yard or doing dishes or doing laundry. But this weird thing happened where it appeared to be cutting me off from my family. And I don't know exactly why that was, but it did. So relatively too recently, I switched to listening to the book of Philippians, to listening to a book by Jonathan Edwards, to listening to somebody else who is explaining how to do your work more effectively for the glory of God. And the result is I have not been nearly as interested in watching or listening to dragnet episodes from the 50s with their especially cringe-worthy cigarette ads. Instead, I'm more interested in getting my work done, which seems like a benefit to me. So my question is, where are you wasting your time? Where would you rather be spending your time instead? And what's preventing you from doing so? So we're to apply the gospel by living productively. And this has been another way in which Paul has advocated applying the gospel. The gospel comes alive in us when we live it out in real life. All right, and we're to the final verse, verse 15. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all says, everyone with me sends you greetings. Paul isn't alone. And that's characteristic of Paul. Wherever he goes, he isn't alone. He brings colleagues or he creates colleagues of the people he meets there. And they are of like mind, enough so that they send their own greetings to the people with Titus, which might be anything from saying hi to send a kiss for me. But everywhere he goes and everywhere he's been, Paul has antagonists too. And so what does he say? He says, greet those who love us in the faith. He sends greeting from the one another's. He sends greeting to the one another's. And this appears to be a stepping around those who aren't one another's, even if they're people who are attached to Titus's churches. Do you know that feeling, that special feeling of being with one another's? It's one of the things that we miss about not being able to be in the same place at the same time. But nonetheless, it's what I feel when I see your face on the Zoom call at 1130, or I hear your voice when we talk on the phone, or when you send a note and I see your handwriting and I've seen it before, and it just, it lights up my day. There's something beautiful about being with the one another's. And the typical sign-off letter of that era would have been farewell. You see one in the letter the Jerusalem's church sent to the Gentiles near the end of Acts chapter 15. 
But Paul isn't just wishing these dear ones good health, which is what farewell means. He wishes them grace, the grace of God, of Jesus, of the Holy Spirit. His greetings and farewells don't always mention all three, but here he mentions none. It's interesting. Does that mean that it's not from God? No, the gospel has permeated this whole book, and grace is exuding out of Paul and his people to this other set of Titus and his people who are one another's together. There's so much going wrong with our world right now, so much that's difficult to face or even to anticipate. But Paul fixated on these two things, his unique mission and the people who are a part of it. So let's remember each other's jobs and living circumstances and help where it's needed. But let's remember also the grace that God has given us to be a congregation in Christ's church. What an amazing gift that is. Let's appreciate the gospel by finding all the ways that we can to connect and communicate with believers. Now, before I close, I want to thank so many of you for doing just that, for connecting with other believers from COV. When I've talked to you, some of you on the phone, you've got lists of who's, who you've been interacting with, and it's great to, to hear. I hope that it's something we don't lose when we pivot back to being able to be one another, with one another. Um, and I'm going to pray in a moment or two, but I need to say a word or two about giving. Thank you to those who are able to give and who are doing so generously. And thank you for allowing some of us to be in the situation of spending a lot more time than we would have otherwise to do good things, to pray, to study the word, to sing, to connect with believers. Nobody who watches these playlists needs to give anything. But if COV is your home, if this is where you're growing, you can give what you intend in your heart by going to our website at covalley.com and clicking on the link that says give. I want to close with what the English theologian John Stott said in summing up what Titus was about. He says, Having now studied the three chapters which make up this short letter, it is evident that doctrine and duty has been an appropriate title for it. For in the church, chapter 1, Christian leaders, in contrast to false teachers, are to pass, pass along the apostolic faith and practice what they preach. In the home, chapter 2, members of the household are to go about their different duties in this present age, motivated by the past and future appearings of Christ. Not the mundane things, the past and future appearings of Christ. Christ motivated. All right, and in the, the world, chapter 3, conscientious Christian citizenship is to be a spontaneous overflow of that great salvation which God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has won for us. Thus, doctrine inspires duty. Duty adorns doctrine. Doctrine and duty are married. They must not be divorced. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the ways that you have taught us through Paul as well as Titus, how to live in the grace of your gospel, how to live that out in who we are and by what we do. And God, would you help us 
to reject speculation and division and in our actions and in our tongues to affirm the gospel. And God, I pray that you would allow us to live productively, to live productive lives about things that matter, about other people who matter, caring for the one another's. And I ask that in that way, we would apply the gospel. And God, I pray that we would not just hear these words from you, but that we would put them into practice by connecting with each other, that you would cause us to appreciate the gospel because of what we share with others as we communicate with them. Would you knit us together even as we have to stand further apart? I ask these things because you purpose to do them in our lives. Would you help us to be compliant to your will and to enjoy all that that means? In Jesus' name, amen.